the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, seven minutes after four o'clock is the time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Today we're going to talk with Colin Smith. He is a pastor and the author of Heaven So Near, So Far, the story of Judas Iscariot. He's written the book to a specific audience and we'll talk with him about that when he joins us later this hour. Then in the five o'clock hour, we're going to welcome a new advertiser to the KPDQ lineup. Clark Galloway will join us. He's the president of Edu Staff, which presents a tremendous opportunity for folks who are looking for uh, work work part-time or looking to break into uh, education in the states of Oregon. Uh, I guess just Oregon, as I, I think about it. Anyway, he's going to join us to tell you more about EduStaff. And if you can't wait, you can go to their website, edustaff.org, for more information. And we'll talk with Michelle Wooster. She is an educator. She's the administrator at Grandview Christian Academy in Beaver Creek, one of the Christian schools that has offered a discount on their tuition. And we've been uh, highlighting that fact uh, for the months of February and now March. I want to encourage you to go to the website listenersavings.com for more information on discounts of up to 40% on Christian schools here in the metro, Portland metro area and in southwest Washington. Lots of them are gone now, but there are still some available, and I would uh, urge you to take a, uh, take a look at what's still there. Well, the serial bomber who terrorized Austin, Texas for three harrowing weeks was identified this morning just hours after he blew himself up with his own device as police were closing in. Mark Anthony Condit, he was 23. He was uh, named as the bomber, an ATF source uh, confirmed. A picture of uh, Condit in 2013 from his mother's Facebook page was authenticated by the Austin American statesman. Condit was killed near the motel he was uh, traced to by authorities using surveillance footage from a Federal Express drop-off store and cell phone triangulation technology. Uh, Officers... um, say that we want this to come to a peaceful resolution. Austin police had said the night before. However, we were not afforded that opportunity when he started to drive away. Condit was homeschooled. He went to Austin Community College. Neighbors told the Austin American Statesman, the local newspaper, I know this is a cliche, but I just can't imagine that a neighbor uh, who spoke to the newspaper on the condition of anonymity and whose children grew up playing with Condit. Authorities have said the 24-year-old, um, uh, uh, the shooter rather, or the, the bomber was 24-year-old, but public records obtained uh, indicate that he was 23. His mother posted a picture of him on February of 2013 to mark his uh, completing a high school level education. I officially graduated Mark from high school on Friday. She uh, uh, she wrote one down, three to go. He has 30 
uh, hours of college credit, too, but he's thinking of taking some time to figure out what he wants to do, maybe a mission trip. Thanks to everyone for your support over the years. He and his father, Pat Condit, purchased a uh, property last year that is now valued at some $69,000, according to property records. And the neighbor said Condit had been living in that house, which he built with his father's help. He'd worked at Crux Semiconductor in Austin as a purchasing agent, buyer, shipper, and receiver, according to a profile on a job recruiting website, and had previously worked as a computer repair technician. Police say that he detonated two package bombs as police closed in, firing at him. It was uh, not immediately clear whether he died from the bombs or shot fi- shots rather fired by police. One officer was knocked back by the blast, but none were seriously hurt. Uh, one of the uh, uh, observers said police Police had zeroed in on a person of interest over the last 24 to 36 hours, tracing him to the motel in Round Rock, where they spotted his vehicle. The suspect is believed to be from the Pflugerville area, or I believe that's the correct pronunciation, located near the site of the showdown with the police at Round Rock. Uh, the shooter, or rather the bomber, now dead. Well, the family of the Austin bomber, Mark Anthony Condit, is speaking out after learning it was the actions of their relative that left the Texas city on edge throughout the month of March, saying, we are devastated and broken at the news that our family member could be involved in such an awful way, the family said in a statement. We had no idea of the darkness that Mark must have been in. Well, the family is described as tight, added that they're normal in every way. We love and we pray and we try to inspire and serve others, the statement said. Right now, our prayers are for those families who have lost loved ones, for those impacted in any way, and for the soul of our mark. The 23-year-old was identified by federal prosecutors. During a news conference uh, today, officials said explosive experts were working throughout the day at a home in Fleurville, Texas, to safely remove and dispose of homemade bomb parts linked to Condit. Homemade explosive materials was uh, were found inside the house, uh, but there was no uh, completed a device, according to ATF special agent. Authorities were able to track down Condit using different technology, including surveillance footage and cell phone triangulation. Um, he, um, uh, again, uh, one of his uh, unidentified aunts said, I had no idea why he did this. He was at my Christmas table. He was a great kid. He was smart. He was loving, kind. I have no idea who this person is. Another family member shared similar sentiments, telling Fox 31 that Mark was low-key and peaceful. A family friend told ABC News that the Condits were a normal Christian family, said there was nothing going on with Mark when I knew him. I knew him as a teenager. He reminded me of every teenage boy. It was hard to get a smile out of him. Officials are still working to determine why he carried out these attacks and if he had any accomplices. Authorities uh, boasted of uncovering a treasure trove of information about the 23-year-old, but officials warn explosives may still be out there and other collaborators may be on the loose. We don't know where this suspect had spent the last 24 hours, and therefore we still need to remain vigilant to make sure that no other device has been left out in the community. The mayor um, Victor Gonzalez uh, said uh, where Condit had lived um, earlier today in his comments. Just a sad situation all the way around. The 23-year-old person um, who was responsible, uh, perhaps solely, perhaps not, is now dead. And his family is uh, puzzled by what on earth led to uh, this level of, uh, of violence.
In other lead stories, uh, the president says they're all Pelosi Democrats, uh, predicting Republicans will keep the House majority after November's midterm elections, warning of dire consequences if they didn't. Speaking at the National Republican Congressional Committee's annual March fundraising dinner in Washington, the president warned that Democrats would block efforts to secure America's borders, try to raise taxes. He described House Democrats as being way outside the American mainstream and warned that they uh, would not campaign as moderate. They would campaign as moderates, but always govern as radicals. They are all Pelosi Democrats, Trump said, referring to the House Minority Leader, weak on crime, weak on terrorism, weak on national defense. Apart from Pelosi, Trump singled out frequent critic Representative Max, Maxine Waters, who he described as low IQ individual. Meanwhile, Facebook executives may not have many friends on Capitol Hill. They've agreed to brief House Judiciary Committee staff as soon as, uh, well, this week, following the fallout over Cambridge Analytica's use of and exploitation of user data from some 50 million people. The social media giant is facing tough battle convincing lawmakers that users' privacy concerns are of paramount importance to the company since it was revealed that a third party accessed and stored the data of millions of users despite saying it deleted the information. Political data analytics company Cambridge Analytica, known for ties to Donald Trump in 2016's presidential campaign, is accused of improperly obtaining user data after the creator of a quiz that was taken by more than 270,000 people passed the data to the company. Various media reports claim Facebook was aware of the situation in 2015 and, in fact, boasted about it under the previous administration when the um, data was used successfully by Obama and his team. More on that later. 16 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Colin Smith. He's the author of Heaven, So Near, So Far, The Story of Judas Iscariot. It's a first-person account that's true to the biblical account. Rather interesting, written for a specific audience, and we'll talk with him about that when he joins us in our next segment. Well, congressional leaders today said that they were close to unveiling a $1.3 trillion bill to fund the government through September. Lawmakers are racing to meet an end-of-week deadline to avert another shutdown. I mean, at this point, it's just kind of a yawn because every other week, they're, you know, they're racing to do what they should have done months ago. Republican leaders are highlighting an additional $80 billion boost in spending for the Pentagon to $700 billion for fiscal year 2018 to try to sway conservatives who are wary of the overall price tag of the package. The bill also includes another $63 billion in domestic spending increases sought by Democrats, pushing that figure to $600 billion, a billion here, a trillion there. Congress spends, uh, or rather agreed last month, although Congress does spend, but they agreed last month on the $143 billion funding boost above spending caps set by Republicans and President Obama in 2011 debt deal, because after all, it's your money. The final negotiations were hammered out between the top four congressional leaders, the House Speaker Paul Ryan, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, and Senate Minority Leader Charles Schumer. Emerging from the uh, meeting this morning, the leader sounded positive but said there were still some final details to be worked out. A release would uh, was supposed to occur today and give um, 
uh, lawmakers little time to get the bill through both the House and the Senate by 12 o'clock a.m. on Saturday, the next government funding deadline. House leaders had uh, talked about voting on the package as early as last week to give the Senate plenty of time to meet the, the March 23 funding deadline. But the timing of the bill's release kept slipping as lawmakers failed to resolve the final sticking points, which include immigration, abortion, guns, funding for the New York, New Jersey uh, tunnel construction project, you know, this and that. Uh, President Trump um, appeared likely to get about $1.6 trillion in border security funding through that uh, uh, that's much less than the 25 uh, that the White House was seeking in exchange for new protections for uh, DACA dreamers. The bill wasn't expected to address new protections for those DACA recipients. The measure is also expected to include multi-billion dollar funding boosts for efforts to combat the national opioid epidemic, the National Institutes of Health. Well, some final sticking points included whether to attach a gun-related measure that encourages states and federal uh, agencies to uh, submit more records into the National Instant uh, Background Check System and a potential fix to the provision of the GOP's $1.5 trillion tax cut bill. The lawmakers say disadvantages certain agriculture companies. Uh, Senate leaders acknowledged this week that the proceedings could slip into this weekend when thousands of protesters are scheduled to descend on Washington to march in favor of stiffer gun control laws and that lawmakers might need to pass another stopgap measure to prevent a brief lapse in funding, which wouldn't surprise, I suppose, anyone at all. By the way, um, Congress is still ignoring its spending problem. Uh, That deadline for the $1.3 trillion spending bill, um, while spending is in the name of the uh, the bill, uh, the problem part of it isn't really being looked at very closely. Facebook CEO and co-founder Mark Zuckerberg today broke his silence regarding the social media site's role in what he called the Cambridge Analytica situation, in which the research firm allegedly accessed 50 million Facebook users' profiles improperly. In a post, Zuckerberg wrote that Facebook has a responsibility to protect your data, and if we can't, um, then we don't deserve to serve you. Okay, I'm happy with that. Anyway, claiming that the company is working to make sure this doesn't happen again, Zuckerberg gave a brief timeline to Facebook's relationship with Cambridge Analytica. He said that in 2013, Alexander Kogan, a researcher with Cambridge University, created a quiz app that was installed by roughly 300,000 people who shared their data as well as some of their friends' data. Um, Given the way our platform worked at the time, that meant uh, Kogan was able to access tens of millions of their friends' data, the CEO wrote, which seemed obvious to me at the time. Anyway, in 2014, Zuckerberg said Facebook announced that we were changing the entire platform to dramatically limit the data apps uh, that could access uh, that information in order to prevent abusive apps. These changes, Zuckerberg said, would prevent any app like Kogan's from being able to access so much data today. Well, Facebook co-founder went on to say that in 2015, the company learned that Kogan uh, used the user data information he obtained and shared it with the Cambridge Analytica and banned Kogan app. Well, the company demanded that Kogan and Cambridge Analytica formally certify that they had deleted all improperly acquired data. Zuckerberg wrote they provided these certifications. However, Zuckerberg said that following various reports from major news outlets, Facebook learned that Kogan and Cambridge Analytica may not have deleted the data as they had certified and they were banned from using the company's services. This was a breach of trust between Kogan, Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, but it was also a breach of trust between Facebook and the people who share their data with us and expect us to protect it. I'm not sure who expects Facebook to protect their data. 
Um, uh, as we are we that gullible or are we unaware of how our data is used uh, regularly? But nonetheless, that's where it sounds uh, stands rather at this point. But then if you look back just a few, I don't know, minutes, the left was, is now outraged at President Trump's campaign using data mined to win the 2016 election. But neither the media nor Democrats seemed to mind when President Obama's team did the same thing. In fact, it was considered genius at the time. Conservative commentator Ben Shapiro penned a column for The Hill on two Tuesday, and it was headlined, "What Genius for o- What's Genius for Obama is Scandal When It Comes to Trump, which outlined the differences in the way similar news was covered during contrasting administrations. A former Cambridge Analytica employee claims the company harvested information from 50 million Facebook users. The company, best known for its work on Donald Trump's uh, presidential campaign, used the data to build psychological profiles so voters could be targeted with ads and stories. Shapiro surfaced a 2012 report from The Guardian that proclaimed Obama's re-election team was mining data through Facebook to target specific voters. The Guardian is also the publication that reported on political data analytics company Cambridge Analytica and its ties to Donald Trump's presidential campaign. Well, Cambridge Analytica is accused of harvesting, as we've already said. Well, Shapiro noted that Facebook didn't object when Obama's team used a tactic similar to what Trump's campaign employed, noting that a former Obama campaign staffer recently admitted Facebook didn't try to stop Obama's 2012 re-election team because the company wanted him to win. Obama's campaign built a database of every American voter using the same Facebook developer tool used by Cambridge, known as the Social Graph API, according to the Washington Post. This technology allowed the Obama campaign to access information of voters to figure out which people would be most likely to influence other people in their network to vote, according to the paper. Facebook was surprised we were able to suck out the whole uh, Social Graph, but they didn't stop us once they realized realized uh, that was um, what we were doing. Ex-Obama campaign staffer Carol Davidson tweeted on Sunday from her verified account. As soon as Facebook realized that Cambridge Analytica had pursued a similar strategy, they suspended the firm. Well, Davidson said the Facebook was uh, candid and revealed that the company allowed the Obama campaign to do things it wouldn't have allowed someone else from the opposing side to get away with. Not so with Trump. As soon as Facebook realized that Cambridge Analytica had pursued a similar strategy, they suspended the firm, Shapiro wrote. This isn't surprising since Trump's election, Democrats in search of a, a rationale for their favored candidates defeat have blamed a bevy of social media outlets. Facebook has agreed to brief House Judiciary Committee staff as soon as Wednesday. Didn't happen today, maybe uh, later this week. Following the fallout over Cambridge Analytica's use and exploitation of user data from some 50 million people, and Zuckerberg has been under fire for remaining silent. He broke that silence earlier today. Headlines tying the 2016 Trump campaign to data mining have been strikingly different. The New York Times wrote how Trump consultants exploited the Facebook data of millions while liberal cable uh, news pundits have agonized over the news. When Obama was exploiting Facebook users to help win re-election, it was an act of political genius. When Trump attempted something similar with unclear results, it's a travesty of democracy and further evidence that somehow he stole the election, the editorial board of Investors Business Daily concluded. Meanwhile, Shapiro doesn't even think uh, the supposedly nefarious workings of data mining by the Trump campaign influenced the outcome of the election. It didn't win Trump the election, by the way. Trump won the election because Hillary was an unbelievably poor candidate. He uses a different word. And Trump campaigned in the right places, Shapiro 
Cicero said, it's just nonsense. Nonetheless, it's always interesting to see how the same story is covered under different circumstances by the same people. And I hope we are vigilant enough to keep track in our own minds so that we're not too easily influenced by what to be outraged about and what to simply shrug our shoulders over as, yeah, business as usual. 31 minutes after four o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Colin Smith. He's a pastor and an author. His latest book, Heaven So Near So Far, the story of Judas Iscariot. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. It read, I came as close to heaven as a person can be without getting in. So begins the compelling story of Judas Iscariot in the book that we're going to be talking about, Heaven So Near So Far written by author and pastor Colin Smith. In Heaven So Near So Far, the story of Judas Iscariot, uh, Pastor Smith stays true to Scripture as he takes readers on a journey through the three years Judas spent as a close disciple of Jesus, culminating in his ultimate betrayal of the Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane. As Easter approaches, he explains that the story of Judas Iscariot serves as a reminder for Christians to never give up on their faith. And although Judas was a disciple of Jesus, he turned away as soon as it became costly and took another path. This comes as a warning to us as we see a growing trend in our own culture of people who at one time identified themselves as Christian and were giving up on the faith they and have given up on the faith they once professed in Jesus. Well, Colin Smith is senior pastor of the Orchard Evangelical Free Church in the suburbs of Chicago. His preaching ministry is shared nationwide through the daily radio program, Unlocking the Bible and through his website. He joins us today to talk about his uh, latest book, Heaven So Near, So Far, The Story of Judas Iscariot. Thank you so much for joining us. Georgina, it's a delight to be with you. Thank you. Now, it might be surprising uh, that a pastor would choose to write on the life of Judas Iscariot, but you wrote, you chose this subject, and you wrote about his life, a firsthand account for a specific audience. Tell us what compelled you to write his story and to whom. Well, I think that uh, every Christian uh, knows someone who once professed faith in Jesus Christ and in some way has veered away from that faith or is close to uh, abandoning the faith that they once professed. I certainly have folks that I I love and pray for regularly like that in, in my own life. Um, you know, someone who's brought up in a Christian home and now shows no interest in Christianity or someone who has uh, served the Lord, extended themselves in serving the Lord in one way or another and then has grown cold and, and no longer expresses any interest in following Jesus. So I, I wanted to be able to to, to speak uh, to folks who are finding difficulty with their faith and to commend um, uh, the invitation to follow Jesus Christ because it is worth whatever it costs and it's worth whatever diffi- overcoming whatever difficulty we have in order to do that. As I mentioned a moment ago, you stay true to Scripture, and yet we know very little about Judas Iscariot except for what we read in the Gospels. Uh, you fill in a story that really walks us through the ministry that he walked alongside Jesus in and uh, gives us a context that we may not have thought about. I know I've read the, the Gospels many, many times over the years of my uh, following Jesus, and yet as I read your book, I thought about Judas in a bit of a different way. How did you determine what course you were going to take, beginning with the notion that uh, he declares in this uh, first person account uh, that he was really motivated by ambition that in your first chapter seems fairly common and uh, innocent in a in a sense 
Yeah, well, I, I think one of the things that really struck me in immersing myself in the story of Judas Georgine was that he really is um, a, a person much closer to me than I might have yes. liked to think, you see. I mean, he went out and he preached the gospel. He was given authority to cast out demons. Um, uh, he followed Jesus up close and personal for three years, and yet he makes this wretched choice and he gives up on the Savior that he's followed. So I think it's easy to dismiss Judas as a kind of a, uh, almost a cartoon character, a kind of villain um, in, in a play or in a drama, but he's much closer to us than that. And uh, as I began tracing the references to Judas that you've referred to in the Gospels and also um, the broader statements about the disciples of whom he was was one, just putting the pieces together um, became very compelling to me. I mean, think of this, uh, along with the other disciples, he, he heard the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He would have distributed the uh, loaves and the fish when Jesus fed 5,000. He would have been in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm. Well, already said he's been out on a missions trip and been a proclaimer of the gospel. So all of these things, I think, bring him much closer to, um, uh, to the reality of our experience than uh, uh, the dismissive way in which we might uh, kind of uh, uh, regard him as a as a villain um, otherwise. Yeah, and I, I think that's what I sensed as I read it as well, that he was much more similar to me than dissimilar. And that was, yeah. that was a little, um, it made me feel uneasy, <laughs> recognizing yeah. that one can walk closely with Jesus and yet make a decision, a fateful decision to walk away, despite having had that close relationship. You begin by describing um, how Jesus identified Judas Iscariot to be one of his disciples and kind of the tension of waiting to see if his name was going to be called and wanting to be recognized, wanting to be known, which is very common to all of us. We want our lives to be meaningful. And when Jesus selects him, it, it really begs the question, here we have Judas Iscariot. God knows his character. He knows what this man is going to do, and yet he's chosen by Jesus. And Judas is not only flattered, but I think he's grateful to be counted among uh, the twelve. Yeah, that's right. He's always the last to be mentioned in every list of the twelve. So you know, anyone who's ever had the uh, uh, the school um, uh, 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 the, the the school chil- uh, child experience of kind of waiting to be picked for a team and uh, being the last to be picked. I think that was Judas' experience. Uh, After the others were named, he seems to have been the last to be named. I'm sure he was very glad to have made the cut, as it were, (laughs) and to be there in in that group. And uh, he experienced the same things as the other disciples experienced. But there was, I think, a double-mindedness about him right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And the Bible says, you know, a double-minded person is unstable in all of their ways. And I think we see that in Judas. You see it particularly, for example, when Mary pours out that very costly ointment over the head of Jesus. And Judas uh, criticizes her for this because it was too costly, you know. And it's fascinating. It's the cost that made what Mary did wrong in the eyes of Judas, but it was the same cost that made what Mary did right in her own eyes because she saw Jesus as of supreme value. Judas did not see Jesus as of supreme value. It seems that he therefore uh, wanted to attach Jesus to another agenda. Uh, Money certainly seems to have been important to him. He was stealing from the bag. 
But whenever we try to, whenever a person tries to use Jesus and attach Jesus to another agenda, at the end of the day, the other agenda always wins. And at the end of the day, there's a betrayal of Jesus that is at the end of that line. Mm. One other thing I'll mention before we continue on in the story. It was interesting to me um, how he comments in the book, uh, Heaven So Near So Far, on the selection of the other disciples. Why on earth would he choose him? And he he goes into some detail on why this (laughs) disciple shouldn't, you know, Matthew, why on earth would you choose Matthew? Why would you choose Paul? And somehow seems him sees himself as supremely qualified and sees the shortcomings of others failing to recognize the the um, uh, the moat in his own eye in this uh, process of being selected by Jesus to be a disciple. Yeah, you know, I I, I really worked on on, on that point from the uh, uh, the profound truth that sin really does have a blinding effect. Um, it, it it takes away our own awareness of ourselves. It's very interesting to me that in in the Last Supper, when Jesus says that one of uh, the disciples is going to betray him, the other disciples don't say, oh, is it Judas? They all say, is it I? So they all had a sense that they had it in them. They had the capacity Mm. in them to be the betrayer of the Lord Jesus. And that's actually a sign of the spiritual light that was in their lives. Judas seems to have wandered um, through his various experiences without much real knowledge of himself. Jesus says to the disciples, one of you is a devil. Um, Judas seems to have no awareness of the work that the enemy was doing in his own soul. We're talking about the book Heaven So Near So Far, the story of Judas Iscariot, very well written. And in it, not only do I learn something of uh, the man that is uh, despised in Scripture as having betrayed Jesus, but I learned a great deal about myself and how vulnerable we can be if we are not Uh, all in when it comes to following Jesus and recognizing our own need for him and our own shortcomings. 45 minutes after four o'clock is the time. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back to continue our conversation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 49 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the book, Heaven So Near, So Far, The Story of Judas Iscariot. Pastor Colin Smith is the author. He's senior pastor of the Orchard Evangelical Free Church in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. His preaching ministry is shared through the daily radio program, Unlocking the Bible, and through his website, unlockingthebible.org, as well. This is the story of Judas. It's a firsthand account. It's true to to the biblical uh, account in Scripture, but helps us to perhaps not only better understand uh, Judas, but better understand ourselves and our desperate need for Christ. Um, You, in the third chapter, you title it um, uh, Frustration, and you begin to write about uh, how Judas Iscariot, who, although he's um, participating in and walking alongside Jesus in his ministry, begins to exhibit some frustration, which again exposes that double-mindedness that you mentioned a few moments ago. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think particularly this uh, relates to uh, to money. We know from John's Gospel that uh, Judas was taking money out of the bag. And that is uh, told to us in the context of this uh, incident we spoke about a few moments ago where Mary pours the costly ointment over Jesus and Judas objects because of the cost. So money clearly was a big issue um, uh, in regards to um, the agenda that Judas had. So I kind of project back from that to some of the people who had big resources that uh, met with Jesus and with the disciples, the rich young ruler being one, 
And uh, I, I'm sure Judas, as the treasurer, must have been salivating at the thought that the rich young ruler might become a disciple. And Jesus, instead of saying, give us all the money uh, and come on board and uh, trust it to Judas, he says, uh, no, you've got to, to, to sell it all and give to the poor. I would have thought that was very frustrating to someone with Judas' agenda. And probably similar with Zacchaeus. And then he just reached bursting point when it comes to Mary pouring the ointment over Jesus. He doesn't think Jesus is worth that much. He thinks that uh, the money is worth more. And that's an indication of the double-mindedness that's at the, uh, at the root of, uh, uh, of his problem. He, um, again, in the first-hand account of Judas Iscariot, it's, it uh, certainly is true to Scripture, but does take some license in filling in some of the, uh, the details that are, are not absolutely clear in Scripture as we're walking along with Jesus, who is walking alongside um, uh, Judas, or rather the other way around. And Judas is then confronted with a decision. Um, I suppose the question, who do you say that I am, was one that he himself had to answer at some point. And in your fifth chapter, Decision is the uh, is the title of that chapter in which he writes about the, the four days that uh, he thought carefully about his position, which I think, again, illustrates that double-mindedness and uncertainty that what Jesus was selling, um, uh, Judas was was going to buy. Yeah, that's right. And I try to make the point throughout the book that's very clear in the Gospels that all the way down the line, Judas is making clear decisions for which he has responsibility. The the, the Gospels consistently uh, refer to, I mean, him taking money out the bag. That's a decision that he makes, and he has moral responsibility for it. He goes to the chief priests and the elders. He takes money. He walks out of the Lord's Supper. So I think, you know, it's very easy to get the idea that Judas was some kind of automaton who was, uh, you know, pre-programmed to do certain things. The the New Testament makes it very clear that um, uh, the outcome of his life was the result of a set of very deliberate choices. And so the story really is a warning to us Um, Judas shows that he was not one of Christ's sheep by the fact that he no longer listened to his voice and no longer followed him. We want to take a very different path from the path that Judas uh, took. And of course, Peter is the contrast. Peter failed uh, terribly also, blaspheming and denying the Lord Jesus Christ. But he was restored because he didn't give up on Jesus. And Judas did. And that's the heart of the story that calls us never to give up on Jesus. In the chapter, once again titled Decision, Judas reflects on the Last Supper, as we refer to it, in which Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He makes reference to the fact that uh, you are clean when there's a kind of a controversy. And Peter says, you know, you should never wash my feet. And we we remember those details. But Judas um, never sees that opportunity, uh, seizes the opportunity to see that Jesus has looked into my heart when he says that not all of you are clean. He doesn't see that perhaps he's referring to him. Uh, instead, he's, he's more interested in hiding the, uh, the plan that he's already made to betray Jesus with the, uh, uh, with the rulers and uh, still doesn't recognize himself as being on the edge of, of the abyss, essentially. Yeah, that's right. And I'm struck by the fact, Georgine, that Jesus just keeps reaching out to him in love. Mm-hmm. And as you described the washing of Judas' feet, can you imagine that? Here's Christ coming that close to him. And he's carrying this unconfessed sin of having stolen out the bag and, of course, having taken the money ready to betray Jesus. There's all that secret. There were, there were many opportunities for him to come into the open, for him to confess, 
and yet he refuses to do that. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus reaches out to him and says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? It's as if Jesus is saying to him, even there, why are you doing this now? Why not take your stand with the disciples? There's grace for you. And that's the message that I want to come over from this book, that where there may be pressure on folks for one reason or another to walk away from Jesus, there's nothing good can come from that. There's always grace and mercy from Jesus Christ reaching out to us and inviting us to draw near and come back to him. You write in this same chapter title decision, as I ate the bread, I knew that I had crossed another line, but I was strengthened by a determined resolve that seemed to come on me at a critical moment in my journey. I had felt it first when I had uh, gone to the priests and I felt it again as I took the morsel of bread from Jesus. Looking back, I now see that Satan launched a relentless assault on my soul. If that makes you feel sorry for me, please spare me your pity. Satan seeks the destruction of every follower of Jesus, and he assaults on me, and his assaults on me were no different from what he attempts with any other disciple. Um, Satan can only enter a person's life when that person opens the door. And again, we see him at a crossroads. Yeah, that's right. And and, uh, Judas very definitely had opened the door for all the reasons that we've just uh, referred to. Yeah, the the scriptures say, I think, on three occasions that Satan entered into him. And the important thing there is that Satan gained an entrance into his life because the door of his life was opened through his continuing uh, secrecy and unconfessed um, uh, sin. And of course, um, the comment that I, I, I make there about the enemy attacking a Christian, the New Testament it's very clear that he's like a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour. And therefore, uh, for that very reason, we have to be on our guard and we have to walk closely with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we move through the story again, uh, Judas Iscariot uh, telling his own uh, story, he uh, comes back with the temple guards and he's surprised having spent three years with Jesus. He's surprised that Jesus identifies himself readily when they come to, uh, to take him. For our listeners who haven't read the book but are familiar with the scriptures, um, does, is there a point at which Judas expresses regret? And when um, he sees Jesus under this new circumstance as he's betraying him, uh, describe how Judas rationalizes himself and at what point he recognizes that I have crossed a line but fails to repent to return to what he had known in that life with Jesus. Yeah, well, the scripture is very clear that um, it was when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned that he comes to a realization of the wrongness of what he has done. So I, I assume that when he saw that Jesus was condemned, that he must therefore have been somewhere in the crowd when uh, Pontius Pilate brought Jesus out after he'd been scourged and said, behold, the man and then condemned him to be crucified. And uh, your, your word is, is right, Georgine. He has regret But he doesn't have repentance, and there's a huge difference. Regret looks backwards, and it merely condemns self. Repentance looks forward and upwards and finds grace and mercy from Jesus. And that's the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter knew what repentance was, and that's why he was restored and wonderfully forgiven and had a future. Judas, well, he just went down the path of regret, and that led him to give up on Jesus. And that's the tragedy of his life. And his story, of course, reminds us that there is a hell to shun and there's a heaven to gain. 
and we can learn from the examples of those who are saying to us, this is not the way, don't walk in it, as much as we can learn from those who are examples of the way that we should walk. And we're just about out of time, but for the listener here today who feels like Judas did, that he had so betrayed Jesus that regret is where they reside today without recognizing the offer of, of restoration through repentance. What do you say to that listener today? Oh, well, I just say don't stop with regret. Don't stay with self-condemnation. That will never get you anywhere. There's no future in that at all. There is a future for you in repentance. And what repentance means is that beyond regret, you look to Jesus Christ, who you may have failed in multiple ways, and you put your trust in him as the one who has grace that is able to restore you and bring you back. Don't be like Judas. Be like Peter. There's no future on the Judas path, but there's a great future for you in the hands of Jesus Christ. The book, Heaven So Near, So Far, The Story of Judas Iscariot. Pastor Smith, thank you so much for talking with us today. A real pleasure. God bless you, Georgie. Bye-bye. Really well done. Uh, I think you would uh, enjoy it, and it's uh, very revealing as you read it as well. News and traffic at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Uh, six minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show second hour, brought to you in part by Liberty Coin and currency. This hour, we're going to talk with Clark Galloway, a new advertiser here on KPDQ. He's the president of EduStaff. You've probably heard some of their spots. We'll get an opportunity to learn more about what they do and how you might partner with them in that. We're also going to talk with Michelle Wooster. She is the administrator at Grandview Christian Academy in Beaver Creek. We'll tell you what they're doing differently there and uh, why this is a great uh, Christian school to consider if you live in the Beaver Creek area. So that's all coming up in this hour. Well, Russia and the European Court of Human Rights have not always enjoyed an easy relationship, though the court dates back to 1959. Russia only accepted its jurisdiction 37 years later in 1996. Well, even so, according to the court's records, Russia is continually ranked as the second most notorious human rights offender over the years. With its new extremism law targeting religious minorities, Russia is on the fast track to becoming the first on that list. Russian President Vladimir Putin signed this controversial piece of legislation legislation into law in June of 2016. In Russia, it's known as the, well, Yarovaya Law and uh, is named after its leading co-author, Irina Yarovaya, a prominent member of Putin's United Russia Party. Well, Russian authorities defend the law as a necessary security measure in the fight against radical fundamentalist groups. And while the law's stated aim is to enable authorities to crack down on militant terrorists and extremist threats, the law has so far primarily been a threat to religious minorities that are anything but militant. Just recently, ADF International, Alliance Defending Freedom International, the global partner of Alliance Defending Freedom, intervened at the European Court of Human Rights in a landmark case concerning religious freedom in Russia. In that case, Jehovah's Witnesses turned to Europe's highest court in a desperate attempt to avoid a complete shutdown in Russia. In 2017, the Russian law was used to label the group's The group as extremists, the Jehovah's Witnesses Administrative Center and 395 local congregations were subsequently closed. And though a complete shutdown is drastic, the penalties could have been even worse. Under the new law, engaging in extremist activities can be punished by up to six years imprisonment and heavy fines. Foreigners face deportation. 
But what exactly is considered extremist in Russia? Well, the Yarovaya and her fellow legislators are rather generous with their definition. All missionary activities have become off limits without prior government approval. And that would uh, apply to Orthodox Christianity, which is what camp we would fall into. They're defined as broadly as sharing one's belief with persons of another faith or non-believer with an aim of involving these individuals in the structure or religious association also known as evangelism. Any faith group could potentially become an offender. Now, this concern has to uh, must have crossed the minds of Russian legislators, lawmakers, as well as they exempted certain registered religious groups, namely the Orthodox Church. Still, even those belonging to a registered group have to carry permits showing that they belong to a state-approved group. Unsurprisingly, religious minority groups have a hard time obtaining that permit. And though very few Russian government officials seem to disagree with the implementation of the new law, the Russian Constitution stands in clear opposition. Article 28 of their Constitution guarantees freedom of conscience and religion, as well as the freedom to profess no religion at all. Everyone should be allowed to freely choose, possess, and disseminate religious and other beliefs and acts according to them. Well, the Constitution doesn't impose reg- uh, registrations, permits, or specific geographic restrictions. It clearly protects religious liberty. Well, before the, U, the new law, people like Pastor Donald Asavarde, or something very similar, lived for decades in Russia under constitutional protections. A Baptist minister, originally from the United States, he moved to a small town in South Moscow and for over 20 years built and shepherded the Christian community. In the summer of 2016, his life's efforts to spread the gospel in Russia came to a halt. During a gathering in his home, four policemen entered and sat down. They took notes during the meeting. Afterward, they escorted the pastor to the police station where they charged him with a criminal act of extremism. His case is only one among many others. To cite but a few, a Russian court recently fined an African Pentecostal pastor for conducting religious ceremonies while not having the necessary permit. Russian prosecutors pursued a pastor of the Church of Free Christians of Seventh-day Adventists for delivering religious books. Local law enforcement interrogated American tourists for merely standing up to greet and uh, congratulate the Word of Life Church in its own building during a Sunday service. Two of them were fined. Well, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, which fall outside of Orthodox Christianity... This Christian, this Baptist pastor, has appealed to the European court. If the judge finds that the uh, recent extremism law has indeed compromised the rights of religious freedom, uh, indicted pastors and entire faith groups might be able to take up their work again. The court's judgment will affect the rest of the court's 47 member states, including countries such as the United Kingdom. In Britain, the government has been trying to introduce a law on extremism, in quotes, for years, as well as an extremism commission to investigate the alleged extremists. Such attempts have not been very successful, not least because the government's own lawyers have failed to define the concept of extremism, and it certainly can change and be redefined. Similar attempts to eradicate free speech are being promoted in many European countries. Thus, the European court's decision is of capital importance. The court has the opportunity to counter not just Russia's extremism law, but to ward off a menace that threatens all of Europe. The court could expose anti-extremism laws for what they really are, legal vehicles threatening democratic pluralism and curbing religious freedom. The impact of the court's decision could ensure the rights to the freedom of religion, of speech and conscience, not just for Russians, but also for all of the 822 million citizens living under its jurisdiction. 
And while many European countries seem to have let their guard down in the wake of um, numerous wicked acts of terrorism, the court could now become the last line of defense for liberty and religious freedom. It's interesting as you read the scripture, particularly as you read through Revelation, it's becoming clearer to see how such dramatic shifts and pressure on the Christian faith uh, could be brought to bear in a very short period of time all over the globe. And we certainly need to continue praying, not just that uh, the court would make the right ruling, but that God's people would be able to stand up and stand firm uh, for their faith under whatever pressure might uh, be brought to bear. It, uh, it certainly has the, the capacity to change the church in dramatic and I think in, in large part many good ways if we find ourselves under that kind of pressure. Well, over the past decade, hundreds of Muslim migrants in Europe have encountered Christianity. They have embraced, uh, have embraced the gospel. In 2012, Christianity Today reported on the dozens of Iranian Muslims who have converted and are, are moving, uh, or rather after moving to Germany. David Kashin, who was, uh, has worked in ministry in Sweden and Bangladesh and taught courses in Islamic history, theology, and Muslim-Christian relations, believes something similar is also happening in Sweden, the largest revival in the last 100 years is going on right now, and it's primarily Muslims becoming Christians. Kashin says he's a professor of intercultural studies at Columbia Biblical Seminary. In recent years, as refugees have arrived in Western Europe, uh, from Iraq and Syria, from some members of these communities have in turn become Christians. Yet Christian communities in Germany and Sweden, comprising both those from the historic Middle Eastern Church as well as recent converts, have been subject to abuse and harassment from radical Muslims who have also migrated. In 2017, Open Doors surveyed 123 Christian asylum seekers in Sweden, and according to their report, more than half of all participants in the survey, 53%, reported that they had been affected by violent assaults at least once due to their Christian faith. Almost half of all participants, 45% in the survey, reported that they have been threatened to death at least once, and 6% reported that they have been targeted of targets of sexual assaults. Kashin joined associate editor Morgan Lee, an editor-in-chief, Mark Galley, to discuss why Iranian migrants, um, more than any others from the Middle East, are drawn to Christianity, whether or not all these uh, conversions are bona fide, and what the Western European governments must do uh, to better protect migrant religious minority communities as the, uh, the numbers who are coming to faith in Christ continue to increase and grow. It's an encouragement, although it's a reminder that they are facing a significant hardship for professing Christ. Up next, we're going to talk with uh, Clark Galloway. He's the president of EduStaff. We'll explain what that is. They're new advertisers here at KPDQ. We'll also talk with Michelle Wooster. She's an administrator at Grandview Christian Academy in Beaver Creek. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, I am delighted to introduce a new part of the KPDQ advertising family with EduStaff. This is a tremendous organization. They're providing quality educational staffing and human resource services for schools in our community, and they're one of the nation's largest educational staffing providers, presenting an opportunity for you, KPDQ listeners. So join us to talk about that is the president of Edu Staff, Clark Galloway. Thank you so much for joining us today, and welcome. Well, Georgine, thank you for the opportunity to uh, speak with you today. You know, this is really a, a, an intriguing uh, program that you have. Explain to our listeners what Edu Staff is and what you all do. Well, Edu Staff is really a substitute uh, staffing provider specifically for local public schools. 
And when we start talking about districts in Oregon, and specifically in the, in the Willamette Valley, where we have a contract with multiple school districts, you know, in, in years past, uh, substitutes, uh, once they kind of go through schooling and get their certification and want to become, you know, noticed as, a, as a, an opportunity to become a teacher, would, you know, apply with various school districts to become a substitute. In years gone by, they could have had easily five or six employers, five or six orientation processes and dispatches, et cetera, et cetera. And even prior to Edgestaff coming on the scene, uh, a lot of the districts in Oregon uh, put together something called the CTA, or the Cascade Technology Alliance. And this was several districts that uh, came together through their ESDs, or Educational Service District, that does a lot of governing work and Mm -hmm. assistance to local schools. And said, all right, let's come up with a single process for substitutes. And they were kind of ahead of the eight ball by coming up with a, a way for someone to apply online and go through a collective orientation process for as many as 70 to 80 school districts in uh, Northwest Oregon. But it basically stopped there. Now they passed on the employment to the, each individual school district to manage the relationship of the substitute. And so what we did is we came in alongside the CTA relationship and said, all right, well, we will be the employer. We can still maintain single employment, single paycheck, single orientation, uh, a single dispatching process, and then relieve the district from what we call the human resource uh, responsibilities and, and work with all the insurances and all the taxation, all the requirements for being the employer of substitutes. And so that's our relationship uh, specifically with districts in, uh, in the Willamette Valley. Uh, but Edgestaff, we, we do this for about 450 school districts nationally. Uh, we've just been you know, very blessed with this particular model that we're bringing to school districts. Now, I think one example would be um, your work in Michigan. You all started in 2010, and uh, you have been uh, really saturating the market in Michigan, providing uh, what these schools, uh, both at the, the lower level and also at uh, some community colleges as well, uh, staffing when, uh, when there's a need for that. You know, in Michigan, I would say at this point, uh, again, being blessed to provide probably 80% of the substitute teacher needs in the state of Michigan, what's happening now is school districts are coming to us and saying, we need this specific individual with a, a certificate in, let's say, middle school math with this particular endorsement for long-term placement. We've also had you at a community college would say, hey, we're looking at someone that uh, has you know a highly qualified background. And the larger a single pool grows, the more quality candidates and uh, different opportunities we can bring to an individual district that, that maybe otherwise they couldn't do on their own. And then by doing that, it gives you know our substitutes uh, or adjunct professors an opportunities to start getting into various schools and colleges to, to bring in their skilled uh, you know teaching services. Now, who are the best candidates to work with Edu staff who would then work in local schools in our community? When we start talking about our relationship with school districts uh, in Oregon, we're providing two different classifications of substitutes. We're starting with substitutes, and that's going to be what we call the the professional or, or the teacher, the certified teacher, uh, and also what we would call classified uh, or support staff. So it could be teachers, substitute parapros, substitute food service, custodial etc. These are the, the varying groups where people may not necessarily want to work every day, but by becoming an employee of Edgestaff uh, and working, of course, in concert with our, our contract with the CTA, we can offer, offer various places for these people to work with a single paycheck and a single process. 
I think one of the things that that uh, was intriguing to me and I think is very attractive uh, to the districts that you work in is are your core values, servanthood, excellence and wholeheartedness. Talk a little bit about how you incorporate those core values when your employees go into the classroom or they're substituting for uh, a janitor or some other role that uh, you've been called upon to fill. Well, those three values first start with the leadership and the and the overall internal employees of our organization, and then we do everything we can to broadcast that to people who are representing both edge staff and working in the local district. But those three words are simple, but yet deep. They're yes. profound. And when we start looking at these three words, when we look at servanthood, you know, uh, we look at it as basically the desire to treat others the way we would hope to be treated ourselves, and you know, treating our neighbors ourselves. Uh, and that comes on every time we are talking on the phone, how quickly we pick up the phone, uh, the smile that's on our face when we talk to people on the phone, all the way to the way we want to treat the people who are serving in our local schools. The excellence piece is, well, if we're going to do it, let's make sure that we have all the right information, we can give the, the best possible answers we can give, and come in so that we are maybe basically doing the, the what I would say the best that we're being called to do. And finally, this is one word you typically don't see in what we call a searched core value. It's wholeheartedness. That means that everything we do, whether we play hard, whether we work hard, working with our family, working in our churches or community events or even you know, uh, wrestling our kids in the ground, we're going to throw everything we have at it. Um, and so when we do that, you're basically the servanthood is, is an outpouring of excellence with a whole heart. We're talking with Clark Galloway. He's the president of Edu Staff, and they're providing opportunities for employment here in the uh, the, the, port, the broader Portland metro area. Is there additional training needed, depending on the role that you would like to fill as an employee of Edu Staff? When we talk about training, obviously there's going to be some certification requirements for someone to step into uh, a, a substitute teacher role. These could be people who are holding a current teaching certificate from the state of Oregon. They could be people who are holding on to a substitute teacher permit. They could be people who have an expired permit. Uh, There are some school districts that allow an emergency permit with someone who has a bachelor's degree. They have to go through a procedure to get that and then start an educational route. The nice thing is, is in the state of Oregon, uh, substitute teachers are paid strongly. Uh, They're paid about $178 a day. We'll call it for seven hours of work. And so, obviously, there's got to be a criminal history background check that's done uh, uh, for anybody who's going into or placing a foot in employment capacity in a school district. And for those people who are going into the classified positions, we're talking, at this point, high school graduation and then, of course, uh, clearing a criminal history background. And a lot of times people are looking at their school and saying, you know, I never thought of my school as being an employment opportunity. I mean, you, you look at the big, big, crazy world out there and say, who's going to employ me? And where am I going to work? And what is this going to look like? And right down the road is your school district. And right down the road to the school district could be for what we call retirees who are sitting at home. Mm-hmm. These could be people who are working part-time or unemployed. It could be somebody who is good at working with their hands, but just simply had enough with their current career, who could come in and do some custodial or maintenance work. We have school districts that have what we call floaters that maybe drive a bus periodically, do some mechanical work, do some custodial, help out in the kitchen. There's a wide range of opportunity, whether people are employed directly through staff or if they just simply went to their local public school district and said, how can you use me? Because there's people who want to be used as a servant to serve what I'd call school children in a safe environment. 
And then there's people who are looking to advance their career, and I would say that we lose the majority of our uh, certified staff to direct employment to the school district ultimately. We go through probably a third of our people on an annual basis. For listeners who are interested in finding out more, uh, what's the best way for them to communicate with you? Best way to get a hold of us uh, is simply edustaff.org. That's edustaff.org. Click on Oregon, and it starts the instructions on how to apply uh, and or how to get a hold of us if you have any questions pertaining to positions that are available or how to go through the process. Well, once again, we are delighted to welcome you to the uh, the family of KPDQ advertisers, and I hope our listeners will take uh, the opportunity to learn more about EduStaff, and many of them will uh, play a role in serving our community uh, as well as EduStaff provides them. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Our pleasure, Georgine, and you have just a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Again, Clark Galloway is the president of EduStaff, and their website, again, is edustaff, edustaff.org. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Michelle Wooster. She's an administrator at Grandview Christian Academy in Beaver Creek. We'll tell you all about what they're doing and, you know, how your kids might benefit. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. It has been such a delight to take a few moments each day for the last few weeks to focus our attention on some of the wonderful Christian uh, schools in our community. And Christian education is thriving here. Today we're going to talk with Michelle Wooster. She's the administrator at Grandview Christian Academy. They're located in Beaver Creek. And we want to, uh, to let you know that they are Christ-centered. They're an alternative to secular education and they see themselves as an extension of rather than a replacement for the Christian home and work very closely with them. Here to talk with us about a Grandview Christian Academy is Michelle Wooster. She is administrator there. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, great to be here. Well, let's begin by uh, giving our listeners a glimpse of what Grandview Christian Academy is all about. It's K through 12. We know that you're in Beaver Creek. Give us a little idea of uh, your focus there. Our focus is definitely on the family and on Christ. We are caring from our teachers and goes beyond the classroom. We care about each child as an individual as well as their family. The goal, of course, is to be not just good but godly here. Mm-hmm. I know that um, Grandview began as a, a school that was associated with Grandview Baptist Church, and it has since expanded. But an emphasis on the role of, of the church in helping to nurture children as well as the family has always been a, a central feature at Grandview Christian Academy. Absolutely. We work very hard to not only build Christ-like attitude and spirit within our students, but then also teaching them how to put feet to God's Word, take it beyond just these walls, but out into the community as well. I know for many parents, uh, it's refreshing to know that the school, and we're talking about Grandview Christian Academy, encourages them and invites them to uh, to partner with them in, in uh, modeling Christian values, but also in the process of educating children and modeling what Christ-like behavior is. Absolutely. Our teachers and our staff here, um, once again, we, we believe in living Christ. We believe in setting a great example. We believe in, you know, not just telling our kids what it is that they need to know, but demonstrating that through the classroom and beyond. Now, uh, Grandview, if I understand correctly, you are into your 27th year. So you all have been at this for a while and uh, really have provided a, a comfortable um, and professional environment for young people uh, 
to, to learn in. Let's talk about the academics at Grandview Christian Academy, because in addition to a Christian worldview, parents are concerned about academic rigor. Absolutely. We are a fully accredited preschool through 12th grade. Um, Our academics, we have honors classes. We set a very high standard for our students. Most of our students are testing well above the national average and into the 80th and 90th percentile nationwide. I know a lot of critics of private Christian education suggest that, well, if you send our grandson, if you send our granddaughter to a, a Christian school, they're going to miss out, for example, on some of the things I enjoyed in high school, athletic or uh, choir, some of the extra uh, curricular kinds of activities. What does Grandview have to offer in terms of those kinds of experiences that uh, many of their parents and grandparents in a public school setting might have enjoyed? We do all of those things. We just do it just a little bit differently. We are a participant in OSAA athletics, which means we have gone on to district and statewide competitions. We do, um, we have banquets, we, we travel, we offer so many things, including computer classes, art classes. Um, we never want a student to feel like they're missing anything coming to Grandview. If anything, we want them to feel like they're getting even more. In fact, your website points out that this is the sort of the third leg of the stool. First is the, uh, the emphasis on spiritual growth of the child and the family, an emphasis on academics. And then that third element, as the website points out, is uh, social and physical development. And certainly you offer uh, tremendous opportunities for that. You're part of OSAA Athletics, uh, offer basketball, soccer, track and field, cross-country volleyball. Um, and you also have an international program where students from abroad uh, can become a part of the, uh, the family at uh, Grandview Christian Academy. Absolutely. That has probably been one of the most exciting features that we've added to Grandview in the most recent years. We've been traveling and visiting countries like Korea and China. We just uh, came back from the Philippines. We have students here that have been coming for summer and winter camp, and now we're enjoying full year academics with us. Now, you offer a Christ-centered education. Your mission statement says that um, the academy is, uh, is uh, focusing on glorifying God through the discipleship of students and the pursuit of excellence in education. What is your, your vision of uh, these young people who come to Grandview for their education and the impact they're likely to have on the world beyond? We are hoping, as I mentioned, we want them to learn how to put feet to God's world. It's not enough just to know about Christ, but our goal is to teach them how to share that with others. Even with our international students, our goal is to teach them those things so that they can then take it back to their own countries and share Christ with people back home. Now, let's talk a little bit about um, Bible training and and worship as part of the curriculum at Grandview. Um, How much Bible study is there for students, obviously age-appropriate, but what role does scripture play in that process? God's Word is in everything we do here in all of our classes, whether it's math, English, history, science, all of those things are developed with a godly Christian worldview. We have Bible classes every day for all of our students, age-appropriate, of course. They do chapel once a week with our pastor, with our youth pastor, with special guests. It, it permeates who we are. We're talking with Michelle Wooster. She's an administrator at Grandview Christian Academy in Beaver Creek. I would imagine that, like me, many parents hear what you're doing at Grandview, and it's exciting to consider uh, the fact that these young people, very early on and throughout their uh, education, have the opportunity to see in content 
context, the importance of knowing Christ, uh, knowing his word and the benefits they're going to derive from that kind of background. The sky is literally the limit for parents who are listening, grandparents who are listening and are interested in learning more. What's the best way for them to explore the possibility of placing their children at Grandview Christian Academy? You can call our phone number, which is 503-732-2020, or feel free to visit our website at grandviewacademy.com. Well, I I really want to encourage uh, our listeners to go to the website. There's a lot of great information there. In fact, every time I go to study and kind of prepare for this conversation, I get more and more excited about the young people who are benefiting from the commitment that you and other educators there uh, are making uh, to their future. And I I just want to say thank you for the contribution you're making to the community in Beaver Creek, to the state of Oregon, and certainly to the body of Christ in training these young people up in the way that they should go. Thank you so much. And uh, I hope many of our listeners in the area will take advantage of the opportunity to find out more. Thanks so much. I appreciate your call. (laughs) Thank you for talking with us. Again, Michelle Wooster, Administrator at Grandview Christian Academy in Beaver Creek. Uh, If you're looking for a good, solid education with Uh, from an accredited Christian school. This is a great uh, opportunity uh, for you. As I mentioned, in 1984, Grandview Baptist Church started uh, Grandview Academy. It was uh, Mike and Vicki Mutchler in the uh, Carpenters Hall at the the church in Oregon City. Uh, In the fall of 1991, the academy was started, and it has been been functioning in... uh, in some pretty significant ways ever since. So we're delighted to take some time and focus attention on what's happening at Grandview. And also want to remind you, we still have some uh, tuition discounts available. You can go to listenersavings.com for more information. But uh, every year at about this time, I think it begins in February, right up through um, March, uh, we offer, uh, and I should say these Christian schools, um, offer discounts on their tuition. And uh, many of them are up to 40%. Many are sold at this time, but I would encourage you to check out the website to find out if a school you're interested in is uh, currently offering a discounted tuition. And that uh, website, once again, is listenersavings.org for all the important uh, details. Also, you can find links to some of the schools you've been hearing us talk about and others that haven't uh, yet been on the program and find out more about what they're doing. You may just want to support them in your community in ways that will uh, bolster the impact they're having on young people. Um, in the Portland metro area. That includes uh, Vancouver, Washington as well. We're going to take a break here in just a moment, but we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Jonathan Bach. He is the co-author of The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How to Get It Back. I'd been announcing uh, throughout the earlier part of the week that we were going to be talking with his co-author, but that has since switched, if the name is unfamiliar. But Jonathan Bach will be our guest. Again, the title of the book, The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Get It Back. In an age when superheroes and antiheroes rule the box office, a pretty small film depicting a Christian songwriter's relationship with his abusive father, well, it surprised Hollywood with its third highest take in ticket sales. And it's all about 
a song. Well, of course, I'm referring to I Can Only Imagine. It scored $17 million over the weekend, tapping an often uh, underserved audience that's flocked in recent years to other Christian-themed movies, such as God's Not Dead and Heaven is for Real. People just want to watch something with the whole family. That's what we've uh, tapped into. That's a quote from Imagine co-director John Irwin, whose film lacks a single curse word. Imagine that. In fact, I was watching a movie just the other day. It's one I have seen before. It's it's a movie, I think, from the 80s, and I had seen it many times. This time, however, I just happened to find it was on HBO, and I thought, oh, that's a fun movie. I'm going to watch it. I turned it on, and I wasn't three minutes into the movie, and it emerged as a film I had never seen before in my life because the profanity and the nudity that I had never seen, I guess it was the network version of of the movie uh, suddenly popped up. I was so disappointed. I probably watched two and a half minutes before this happened. I immediately turned it off and just lamenting how it was so unnecessary uh, in the movie. I had enjoyed it uh, all these years um, without all of that, but this cable version of it had all the stuff that I guess the original had in it. Just really disappointing. So families are looking for opportunities uh, to see a film together as a family where you don't have to be concerned or sort of braced it when you have to turn and, you know, cover the eyes of your children sitting next to you. Uh, Irwin, uh, John Irwin goes on to say it matches the song, the same feeling of hope and encouragement. And if you can imagine that, it's a, a film about a man whose uh, father was abusive. And somehow this film lacks a single uh, curse word. It matches the song, the same feeling of hope and encouragement. Well, the $7 million PG-rated movie tells the story behind the most played Christian song to date, I Can Only Imagine. It was a 2001 triple platinum tune by the group Mercy Me. Only the superhero juggernaut Black Panther, which made $26.7 million, and the reboot of the video game-based adventure Tomb Raider, which took in $23.6 million, had bigger box office takes this weekend than I can only imagine. And it may not dawn on us just how significant that is, but it's a pretty big deal. What's more, Imagine bested Disney's big-budget adaptation of Madeline Leangle's uh, children's novel A Wrinkle in Time, which doesn't reflect it quite as well as uh, those who have been fans would have hoped. It stripped the uh, 1962 fantasy adventure of its Christian themes and the widely hailed um, uh, coming-of-age tale Love, Simon, uh, was also out uh, outstripped by I Can Only Imagine. A Wrinkle in Time earned $16 million in its second week, and it was on 3,980 screens nationwide. And the newcomer, Love, Simon, made almost $12 million on 2,400 screens. Imagine opened on only 1,600 screens and beat them both. In his debut movie role, uh, Broadway performer Michael Finley portrays Mercy Me lead singer-songwriter Bart Millard, and veteran film actor Dennis Quaid plays the abusive father, author Wesley Millard Jr., a scoundrel who abused his only child, uh, chased away his wife. Well, the film shows the power of redemption and its depiction of the fractured familial bond and the father's ability to find faith before dying uh, when Bart the main character, uh, Bart Millard, um, is 18. Mr. Irwin, the co-director, connects the big opening uh, weekend to conversations with the real Mr. Millard early in the creative process. I asked him, he says, what is the phenomenon of the song? And Mr. Irwin, who directed Imagine with his brother and frequent collaborator Andrew Irvin, um, Mr. Millard's answer, it's a rush of hope. 
Well, the production team took it from there. Uh, we just understood our audience and what they wanted, Mr. Irwin said. Well, credit uh, the film highs, um, the film's high quality for part of its box office glory. Mark Joseph, who's a producer of uh, such films as The Vessel and Max Rose, critics who often dismiss faith-based productions, uh, gave Imagine an impressive 67% fresh rating at the film review uh, uh, aggregator website, RottenTomatoes.com. So for a faith-based film, that's pretty good. It doesn't have a lot of the embarrassing things some faith-based mil- uh, movies have, Mr. Joseph said, of the genre that's evolved dramatically from its raw micro-indie roots in just a short time. More important, Mr. McQuaid's presence, he's a you know A-list performer, well, maybe B-list on the big screen, with secular movies, but A-list for this, captured audiences in movies such as The Day After Tomorrow, Frequency, and Any Given Sunday. That resonated with Red State America, he said. If you're making a film for the American audience, focus on who the heartland loves. It's often different from foreign calculations, Mr. Joseph said. Dennis Quaid is a superstar in the heartland. Mr. Quaid brings residual goodwill to the film and has aggressively promoted the project. Adam Holtz, who writes for the Christian film review site PluggedIn.com, said the song's massive appeal did some of the heavy lifting. It's easy to forget, I can only imagine, is the biggest selling Christian song of all time. If you can imagine that, a lot of your marketing work was already done. I can only imagine is the only Christian tune to go triple platinum of uh, of ever, I should say. Uh, Timing was also an important uh, factor. It played a role in the film's good fortune. The week leading up to Easter are the uh, sweet spot for Christian movies, Mr. Holt said, citing hits like last year's The Shack, 2016's miracle from heaven. I can only imagine taken in that context is less of an outlier than it seems. The story's core appeal made it easier uh, self to the masses, he says. It's a kind of uh, underdog um, Rocky feel to it. He also says his uh, Rocky story didn't happen overnight. The Imagine team screened the film repeatedly to generate word of mouth in cities as far flung as Kalamazoo, Michigan and Williston, North Dakota. Other screenings were more personalized. Pastors of mega churches are the gatekeepers, the voices that can help shape a movie's success. Ten months of cultivating audience praise eventually paid off. Much of the uh, a shock of some Hollywood insiders. Irwin says uh, some movie executives told him there wasn't an audience for his film. The filmmaker had faith they were wrong. Well, looking back, he says his team tried to combine two distinct groups of Christian audiences. One is older, hungry for a faith-friendly message, but wary of PG-13 or R-rated content. The other is a younger crowd, eager to be entertained and engage pop culture on its own terms. Irwin's film will uh, reach a larger audience this weekend as its uh, distribution expands to roughly 2,000 screens. That's about 400 more than it had already been seen on. He expressed optimism that the box office wave will continue. He says the last time you saw the raw power of a unified Christian church was with the passion of the Christ. We've only begun to see the potential of these films. Now, my understanding is the movie about the Apostle Paul is going to be opening soon. I'm not sure it's this weekend. I'll check on that and report back uh, later this week. But that is also a faith-based film that's going to be released here in the uh, in the near term, right around this Easter season. I'm a little skeptical about it. Uh, in fact, I was talking to James Blend earlier today. We might try to take a trip to see that uh, on Friday so that we can report and let you know how, how the film does in terms of whether or not it reflects the actual historical Paul that we know about from Scripture. Uh, also looking at the uh, Hollywood Reporter, they suggest that the film... Uh, I can only imagine, is reviving the faith-based genre. So it certainly is good for the film itself, but 
uh, apparently for uh, the faith-based genre in general. And they write, in 2014, faith-based films made headlines at the U.S. box office, prompting pundits to declare the year of the Bible. God's Not Dead, for example, earned $61.7 million against a $2 million budget. Heaven is for Real, $91.4 million against a $12 million budget. <clears throat> Excuse me. Film companies responded by flooding the market with so-called faith-based titles, but the results were decidedly mixed between 2015 and 2017. God's Not Dead 2 topped about $20.8 million domestically in spring of 2016, 66% less than the first movie. Now, it can't just be a faith-based film. It has to be one that's actually well done for people to come. But uh, when uh, I can only imagine opened in theaters on the 16th of this month, no one gave the $7 million indie film, which uh, tells the story behind the best-selling song, Much Thought, except, of course, for those who uh, made it a phenomenon that everybody's talking about. And again, that will continue this weekend with uh, more screens uh, available showing it. And the Apostle Paul, the movie, will be opening in screens. I believe it's this weekend, but I'll confirm that and um, let you know um, tomorrow on the program. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Jonathan Bach. He's the uh, co-author of The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Get It Back. Uh, And then on Friday, of course, we're going to uh, do what we always do on Fridays, barring some um, major uh, breaking story, which, of course, we will break in if that's the case. We're going to lighten up and take a look at uh, some of the less serious news. So I hope you will join us for that. Want to take a moment and thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for producing, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.